welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. When I look at this inventory, and when I see what's behind my lust, I'm scared. And I'm scared what I see in Roy, what I saw in Roy R. in Nashville. Very few people know. They know the story that he's now doing life for a brutal sex murder in Nashville. He was the founder of the Nashville SA group. Very few, few people know his real story. And I guess I should, I, I, I guess I'm going to tell you that just for a minute. Excuse me. There's something new. There's something new in the air with lust in our time since World War II. I've seen the rise of pornography. I'm 66 years of age, and I've, I've, I've driven the pornography curve. I've driven the lust curve. I've helped drive it, and I've seen there's something new. There's an exponential curve, and it's a spiritual curve, and it's in, our, it's in the air we breathe, and we're part of that. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's not just a personal sex addiction phenomenon. And I call it the new lust. Anyhow, this man uh, came to our 1983, I believe it was 83, our first con- uh, our third conference in Simi Valley. And he flew all the way from Nashville just to be in an essay meeting. There was very little essay then. And uh, he was a young man, single. And he called Kevin and me after a meeting. And he said, I've got a real problem. I want to kill my girlfriend. And, 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 and Kevin and I were, he's in Dallas, and, and we were totally unexperienced with this. It came out in our conversation that he, he, he knew he was possessed by a demon. And the demon, uh, I'm telling you what he told us, wanted to kill. And, uh, it would leave him and come. And, uh, we didn't know how to cope with that. It's something we don't have in our 12 steps. And uh, it turns out that he, in our presence, he tried to cast it out himself. And we saw this young man suddenly convulse and go through impossible contortions. His body was whipping around. Kevin and I were taking the furniture out of the way so he wouldn't break his neck. There's no way an acrobat could go through all of that tremendous convulsion and contortions and flipping around. It was just, we were, we were just absolutely mortified. Didn't know what to do. And, it, and he stopped and it was like he was dead. And we thought he had died. I thought he had broken his neck. And his pulse was still there and pretty soon he came, came to and he was a transformed person. And he prayed and gave glory to God. And, and, and we're here, we're, you know, Kevin and I are just standing there. And anyhow, at the end of the story is we're we're leaving the room. No one else has seen and knows about this. We're leaving the room. He goes outside the door. I see him take a pack of cigarettes, get a cigarette, and light it up. 
And I just felt the darkness come in. And I said, Roy, and he said, it's back. It's back. And, 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 and he, it was, whatever it was. I said, I don't understand that. But I know that why was I doing U-turns on the main boulevard in this city of ours, chasing prostitutes? Why, why did I pray to Satan? Why, with a Christian, why was I praying to Satan that I can get to that girl first? So, this is an insidious thing. I opened myself, I don't know about your story, but I opened myself to a power, a negative force, that has changed me. And that invests the natural sexual instinct or attraction or whatever it is with, with something that I don't understand but is more powerful than I am. So I'm afraid of love. I'm afraid of what it did to me. The first prayer I could pray in my sobriety was I was doing substitute teaching at Royal High School. And the skirts and the girls and, and, and I was full of, you know, Going to AA meetings, just, and, and, I, and I'd say, I'm powerless, please help me. That's all I could pray. i put all of the theology and all of the Christianity and all of the religion aside that it all passed away, nothing, and it was all gone, and all I had was the AA program and that prayer, I'm powerless. But all I knew about the 12-step program was the first step. That word powerless was the one thing I identified with. And, uh, and I got through. You know, just one miracle at a time, an unbelievable miracle at a time. Uh, that was doing it the hard way. And I slipped after a year and a half, and the darkness really hit. I crossed a really dark line uh, in that last sex trunk of three months. Now, I'm going to skip to the decisive turning point in my lust history. This is a few years later. Essay has started. It's in my garage. The central office is in my garage. And here I'm going to the Chatsworth Post Office with a big arm of literature or whatever, packages and letters and stuff answered. And uh, go into the post office, happy, joyous, and free, you know, and everything. Long line. And, and who's in front of me? The most powerful trigger I can possibly have. Okay. There she is, right in front of me. It's summer. Sufu, flimsy dress. Okay. Trigger. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what we need more of. That's what we need more of. You know, we can have meetings where we just listen to people staring at their neighbor and say, Oh boy, I'll just unfold it. It's not over. <laughs> Or, i got to share Calvin and Hobbes with you. <laughs> okay, they're walking along in the forest, and Hobbes is up behind, following Calvin. Calvin says, nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I am not self-actualized. <laughs> My behavior is addictive, functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. 
I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept responsibility for my actions. And Hobbes says, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of cold water. <laughs> that doesn't penetrate. Calvin has the last line. I love the victim. I, I love the culture of victimhood. <laughs> Where was I? Okay. Only a lockaholic knows the hell. Only a so only a recovering, sexually sober alcoholic knows the hell of temptation. And knows the hell of temptation. And there it was. Now that was the, the image, the figure was, was bad enough, plus being six inches behind. But this dear young woman must have had our illness because she was flipping her head around. It was the unconscious need to connect. Do you want to know that? Do we, do, do we all know what we're saying? You know, the top of the thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it, and it's, it's, it's the same thing. And, and, uh, so that, oh, it's on a silver platter, trying to connect. And of course she's trying to connect with me, right? Well. <laughs> 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 uh, we are egocentric, <laughs> and uh, and I started immediately. I said, "I'm powerless. Please help me." And uh, went through the exercises, and I was surviving. I was I, I wasn't drinking, thank God. I wasn't. I didn't take the drink. Just right six inches in front, the most toxic drink, you know, whatever. And um, I was, you know, hoping the line would move fast and, and everything going fine, and then. I dropped my keys. Right in front of me. I just went catatonic. I mean, I just froze. Because I knew, eventually, unless somebody did it for me, I would have to reach down and pick up those keys. And then in doing so, my eyes would be open. And that I did not have the power in me to shield myself from that poison that was still in me. Not in that image. Not in that person. Being triggered by that, however. Plus, there is a, in some of us, there is a spiritual force, a spiritual exchange that is really spiritual. And we do put out a vibe we do put out, I think sometimes I still unconsciously put out a radiation that a woman will pick up. Or a man will pick up. And when I crossed the gender line in my acting out and discovered homosexual lust, that a whole new area was opened up for me that I had totally been unaware of before. Okay, here I was. What did I do? I just couldn't do anything. I stayed there for an eternity doing nothing because I was frozen. And eventually, you know, the line's going to move and people are going to think, what's wrong with this man? 
So I did, I just said, I, it was just one of those voiceless, wordless telegrams, please help, it's the cry of the lost, the cry of the thinking, the cry of the helpless, the utterly helpless and hopeless. Several years sober, folks. I mean, and it must have been at least seven years sexually sober, seven or eight years sexually sober, at least seven. And the cry went out, and I went down and picked up the keys and came back up with my eyes open, and I never saw anything. And I felt a presence, an invisible shield between me and that image, a personal presence of life, of indescribable, quiet joy and peace and love and protection. And I was free. The rest of the line I was rejoicing in my heart, praying for her and and just, you know, I could have died and gone to heaven. Now that was the turning point when I discovered a better way If there is no God, there is no answer. I began to discover the higher power who was keeping me sober and who wanted to deliver me from the power of lust and who wants to deliver me today from that same power of lust as I walk out of this room or stay in this room in the lobby or whatever. And today, I'm jumping from the beginning of my lust history to the end, where I am today. Today, by the grace of God, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know how to describe this without just telling you the truth of how I see it. The shield of that presence is within me. And I still want to lust. But I don't have to. One temptation at a time. How did it happen? That's what I want to tell you about. How did it work? I wrote, a, I tried to write a brief history of the key elements that brought me to where I am today. When there was nothing else, there was meetings. Meetings, meetings. The meetings were the reductio ad absurdum of, of my recovery. Uh, I mean, with nothing else inside of me, no program, no sponsor, no steps, nothing. All I had was meetings. And um, I had to have that. I had to have that. Even when in every single meeting, I don't care whether it's AA or SA or anything, any other meeting, there's always been some, one of you that I don't like. <laughs> can't stand can't stand and that was later to be one of the great keys of my recovery because as you'll see from my story the step that means the most to this answer of where I am today with lust is the tenth step I hope I can convey this to you so the meetings uh, started first. The second thing I was doing was giving it away. In my first year, I went to the to the court 
where they bust the Johns, uh, where the John busted Johns come in and they haul him up and, and I found my mark and I talked to him after and I said, hey, my, my name is this, this is my phone number. Uh, I used to do the same thing. I got busted for it. And look, there's a way out. I'm using the AA program to stay sober. The man was speechless. He was like Michelangelo's guy being dragged to hell in, 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 on the, in the chapel. You know, he, he's going down and, and, and it's that moment of utter, absolute recognition of eternity. He didn't say a word. He took my card and just walked away. Never heard from the man. He'll never be the same. <laughs> okay. Then the fourth and fifth steps. Finally, after that step, I guess I, you know, they're doing this, so I better do it. I didn't have anybody take me by the hand. They said, keep coming back, that's all. Nobody said, here's an interim sponsor. Nobody said, nobody did what is doing in a, is in, in a marvelous resurgence of our program locally where people will confront you and ask you if you're sober and if you have a sponsor and, and get somebody for you that day. Uh, so I did that. It was a ridiculously simple uh, fourth and fifth step, but it opened the door to being honest. Because then the one thing he did say was, oh, Carl, he said, I want to stop hearing about your wife. I want to stop hearing about, you know, what are you going to do about it? So that opened the door. And, and in AA, I began to be confronted by others. I was very painfully painfully ego-driven and, and, and I'd be cringing after every meeting where I opened my mouth. But I started to tell the truth on myself. Here again, I was not, uh, you know, no, there's no step Nazi hounding me on this page of the book or this step or what are you on now, six, seven, eight, nine, nothing. Uh, but I began to tell the truth on myself and then I met a young man named Kevin, not Kevin from Dallas, but another Kevin locally. And uh, he and I wanted sexual sobriety. There was no essay. There was no fellowship. And and uh, we'd go to AA meetings together and we'd talk. And this man was 21 and I was 49. He was a high school dropout. I was a college graduate. Nothing in common. The sexually acting out was in a different mode. Whatever. But we wanted sobriety. We'd call each other almost every day and I'd say, Kevin, there she is. She's walking down the aisle. She's got it on the silver platter. Micro mini skirt. I'm dying. My guts are in an uproar. And I just want to tell you this. You know, to break the power, of, to, to tell you this in God on the telephone, to break the power this has over me because I, I'm, I'm lost. And he'd say, yeah, yeah, I was by Ralph's on the Santa Monica the other day. King wasn't. And so, we weren't sponsoring each other. We weren't giving advice. I couldn't tell him what to do. He didn't tell me what to do. We didn't know one step from another. But, I made a connection with another human being and God. That was my God connection. And I can't tell you whether this comes before the post office or not. Oh, well, this is way before the post office. Right, right, right. Way before the post office. Anyhow, uh, the next, one of the other things was the, the tenth step with my wife. My wife and I uh, have been married for 30 years and 17 years of recovery. The first two years of our marriage were the greatest hell of our marriage. And uh, I kept uh, trying to control her and, and, and change her and get her to go to the program and everything. And, and by God's great gift, uh, she, she, uh, she resisted me at every step. <laughs> and so I had, I had to start looking at myself. You know, go, go into the garage and write down, where was I wrong? And m- most of the time, all I could do was give her a note and say, hey, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong. 
The tenth step amends was something I had to do to keep from exploding or drinking or driving myself insane with sex. Because the hurt, the, 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 without my drugs, I was a cauldron of defective humanity. A volcano of libidinal forces, just surging. You know, the rage, the resentments, the, 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 the fear. Uh, and thank God we went into abstinence for a year at a time. It's just because I had to, you know, inventory the marriage. Any of you married men in recovery that haven't gone into long, un, open-ended periods of abstinence where you don't need it anymore, you know, you've, you've missed the whole boat, I think. And then, ten steps with essays. And that's the toughest. I'd rather make a ten-step amend to my wife. Please, not you. Not an essay. Not me. Oh. <laughs> uh, it hurts so much. And, uh, uh, to this day, I'm not sure whether I have to make an amends to a, to a man, uh, that, that we had uh, yesterday where I, I probably unwittingly took advantage of my position to, uh, give a viewpoint on the publicity issue and, uh, unwittingly was, was, was perhaps a weight of influence that wasn't letting the intergroup here have their own way on it. And so I, I freely admit that. But anyhow, um, uh, I just, there's no God if I'm lost in resentment. So, here's the strange thing. You know, it's a God program, right? How did I discover God? By making a mess. I don't know how it happened. I didn't discover God. I mean, I just, it, it, apparently the, the amends process just opens the door inside so he's there. And the presence is there. There's no presence. There's no shield when there's, when, when I'm full of the stuff. If I haven't surrendered love. So that process, that discovery in the post office, giving me a new outlook, and then the abstinence giving me a, a, a new outlook in the marriage, uh, where I discovered sex without lust for the first time, uh, led me to the deeper third step. That's when I began to discover the principle of the third step. At first, I think we have to, you know, there's kind of an order here with these steps, and we've got to get into them, and I believe as fast as we can and as hard as we can, we've got to break the step barrier. Sometimes that's the only way to do it. I didn't do it that way because I had no mentors. I had no people. I had sponsors all over the place, but they weren't step people. They didn't guide me. So I, I stumbled through it. I was rediscovering the principles of the steps by the pain and lengthy process of experience. That's why the principles now are active in my life most of the time. Uh, and without, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I began to discover the one keeping me sober. So, uh, I, you know, turned my will and my life over on the third step, sure. I did this the first week. But today, I turn every day my will and my life over. I turn my sexuality over to God. 
I turn my orientation over to God, my misorientation, because I am misoriented to women. I, the so-called heterosexual luster, don't believe it. I'm a pseudosexual, antisexual, because my whole sexual experience worked against my sexuality, against the reality of my being and that of others, and is false. A negative falseness that destroyed my sexuality. My maleness, my humanness, my manhood, my fatherhood. And so today I, I, I surrender that and ask him to keep me sober. I give that back to him. And it's scary. It's scary. Because I'm not healed from my misorientation to women or to men yet. It's a very, very, very slow process. Most of you are probably ahead of me, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I, some of you are, and it's just a, it's a marvelous thing. A marvelous thing. Did you notice in the anatomy of a look, the distortion that comes in? There's the image. A real person, a real human, even in a photograph of a person. There's that person. But when I juice it up with love, there's a distortion. It's, it's something that is asexual. Lust is asexual. It's not heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual. It is asexual. It transcends it. So way beneath, it's a common denominator. It just has no, you know, it's totally asexual. It's driven by, by the God, the self-God. Then I discovered, as, as I was getting more confident, I discovered the quiet time. Listen, when I started, and, and the people in AA, you know, just suggested it gently, well, I'll try it. Uh, meditation is 60s uh, Eastern stuff. They can have that, but I'll, I'll do a little bit of uh, 24-hour day book, and I'll ask that to keep me sober, and I'll do that. And so I was working as a, as a technical writer, and I get up and do that, and I start meditating in the noise, the lust, the images, the memories would just crowd my head, full of noise. And I couldn't do it. And my sponsor in my third year of sobriety said, I don't go into a closet and pray. If I do, I take in a 45 with me. <laughs> and I experienced that once I started meditating in the morning. But I did it. But I'd stop. I didn't push it. A few minutes, and that started, boom, out I go to work. But I kept it up. I kept it up. And I found out that something was happening. One minute more. You know, I didn't time this thing. But uh, today, this is the best time of my life. It's an hour in the morning. If you want a confrontational piece of advice on sobriety, you're not staying sober. You know, here's another one. <laughs> Set your alarm clock at least a half hour early. And do something for yourself. And find God. Find your God. Uh, part of this whole process of, of, of discovering and of continuing to rediscover the shielding presence of the living God. All I can say is my opinion. Anything you hear me is my opinion. Part of it was uh, my addiction to the media.
first thing I discovered was uh, was the quality of matter. And so, if you go in my journals, uh, the, the history, you know, I'll try to stop and put it down cold turkey, and then I'll go back. And just year after year, in my current sobriety, putting television down and then and then picking it back up. And finally, I just uh, I came to the conclusion that it had nothing to do with content. Somebody, the reason I'm saying is somebody asked me about this today. Uh, yesterday, and, and, and they were very, very concerned about it. it. has nothing to do with content. That's just the obvious thing. We live in an image-driven culture since the turn of the century that has changed human ecology. It's alienation-free. It's, 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 we're, we're more, uh, it, we're alienated because of an image-driven culture. Read Susan Sontag's book on, on photography. Every sex comes to read that book. It's a very difficult book. It's the most difficult most perceptive, critical analysis of the impact of still photographic images on the human race and human organism. Unbelievably powerful. He's a prophet in, in the psychology of, of the image connection. And, and beyond that, you know, we've got the movie image connection and everything today. And our, uh, our culture is, is, is image-driven. So I, I, I found out that I was drunk the next morning, that I had the habit to go to sleep. That I didn't feel good, that it shut out God's presence, whatever. It was irrespective of the content. And so I just put it down. Now I'm not a fanatic about it. Once I saw the Pavarotti, I saw the three tenors sing Rome, the, 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 the video of that. And, you know, I sat down and watched that. And, uh, but I, I knew I'd be paying a price. Because I knew that just doing that, the craving came back. And I just wanted to sit down and the next, and the next day, I'm, I'm, I'm an image junkie. The same with movies. And I haven't resolved that yet. I went, I went into abstinence on movies and then out of it and in and out of it. And the same principle applies. These are tremendous forces that alter our humanness and alter our human ecology with respect to the content. And we must come to deal with them if they're like I am. We, we must scientifically, experientially look at them honestly. And the reason I'm bringing this up is in, in the history of essay meetings I've gone through. How many hundreds of times have I heard not of just slips happening, TV and movie slips? And that's nothing. You know, the slip is nothing. It's what's it doing to me? I want me. I used to lose myself. I want to, but I have to have something better. I can't just have a vacuum in my life. That's why we're going to need a deeper fellowship in our faith. I think we're blessed in our illness. I don't call it a disease, it's a loaded word, that's for the profession. It's an illness and malady. I think we're blessed. Because we, I could not do it on putting the plug in the drug and addiction meetings and a socialized spirituality. That'll do it for my alcohol. For other stuff. Think of that now. We can get that kind of survival. Socialized spirituality and addiction to meeting will keep me sober, but not from life. I need a deeper sobriety, a deeper recovery, a deeper higher power, and a deeper fellowship. What an adventure. And I'm just at the beginning. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what marriage is. I don't know what sexuality is. God does. And he's leading us. And he's leading you. And he's leading me because he's leading you. And I can't do it without you. I'm going to close on one thing. And it's 
a whole new topic, a whole new subject. I call it the new warfare. Okay, lust. There is a spiritual remedy for lust. Capital R. There is one whom we can discover. And you know what? Speaking of the 12th tradition, you know, uh, this is something that just came to me last night. The God, the higher power, who is keeping me, who is the shield in my life today, on keeping me sober, leading me, my shepherd, apparently chooses to stay anonymous in his life. Some of us would like to, you know, uh, take him out of the closet here and there. And, and, uh, uh, and, 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 but he, he, he's working anonymously today. But he's here. Do you believe that? I believe that. Say amen. Amen. <laughs> and, uh, I want to be part of it. I don't know how, because I'm afraid of you people. <laughs> you know. And I know you're afraid of me. <laughs> Let's do it. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.